Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is an accomplished film and television actress who has also narrated hundreds of audiobooks. She's so well-versed in audiobook narration, in fact, that she wrote a book about it. Audiobook Narrator, The Art of Recording Audiobooks. Her incredible range led one critic to say, Barbara is to audiobooks what Meryl Streep is to film. Barbara Rosenblatt, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Oh, it's great to be with you, Rich. I really appreciate your time. Once again, as has happened several times during this podcast, many times, maybe every time, I feel like I'm in the presence of royalty. So thank you for joining me. <laughs> what are you drinking tonight in the speakeasy? Ah, oh, well, in your speakeasy, which I have to say is beautifully decorated. I mean, I love the velvet <laughs> cushions and really, and the subtle lighting. It makes me look spectacular. So we thank go, you for we go all out that. here. <laughs> I see that, right? And somebody handed me this this magnificent Waterford goblet of homemade iced tea with a touch of lime juice. Oh, it's spectacular. Thank nice. you. Nice. Iced tea with lime juice. Yes, that is a that's mm. a different one. My uh my wife is a huge fan of lime juice in various things. She like instead of just a lime wedge on a gin and tonic, she actually likes a bunch of lime juice in it. And I have to say, I'm a huge fan of lime juice, too, because uh, I grew up, well, not grew up, but um, I go way back uh, in my drinking days to vodka gimlets, which I still have every once in a while. So I'm a big oh, fan of lime boy, juice. Oh, good boy, I'm a big fan. No, yeah. no kidding. Yeah, I, I used to drink them with uh, Rose's lime juice, and now I just use regular lime juice and every once in a while just a tiny bit of sugar. But uh, but I do love the lime, so that's great. Mm. I am, I'm going to join you in a drink tonight with some Powers Irish Whiskey. I, uh, I went to a doctor recently, a podiatrist, for a toe problem I was having, which was getting better, and then I spent uh, all APAC week walking around Manhattan, and by the time I got home, it was worse again. So went to a podiatrist. His name was Dr. Powers, and I have no idea how, but somehow we got talking about whiskey. And he said, well, yeah, my family has a distillery. And I said, what? He said, yeah, Powers, Powers Whiskey. Yeah, it goes back uh, 300 years. So after talking a little while, it was clear that uh, he was not in the whiskey-making business and that his family is family from many generations ago. But uh, he told me about it, and so I thought, well, that's interesting. So the next time I went to Total Wine, I actually found Powers Irish Whiskey, and I got some. So I'm having a little Powers tonight. So I hope the iced tea is good. I've already tried the Powers, so I know it's good. Uh, so... Oh, Thank Powers you. is exceptional. There, there's a bar in the middle of town. I live in Manhattan. Uh -huh. And I was on my way to a play, and next door to the theater was an Irish bar. And it was freezing cold out, and I thought to myself, oh, you know what? I would kill for an Irish coffee, <laughs> which I've had in, in Dublin. And my God, it's, it's a whole thing over there. Mm, no doubt. So I walked into this bar, and, um, and I and said, hello, madam. Uh, what can I do for you on this chilly night? And I said, um, I, I love an Irish whiskey. I've got about half an hour before the curtain. And immediately he reaches for the powers. No I kidding. Thought, oh, powers, eh? He said, oh, yeah, you don't want to use anything else. This is the finest whiskey in Ireland. I see. And double cream and very fresh coffee and good demerara sugar all together in a perfectly appropriate uh, Irish coffee glass. 
and he handed this thing to me, and it was um, probably the closest thing I've ever had since leaving Ireland. It was so delicious. I went back three times that weekend. Well, that's great. I had no idea. I had never heard of Powers. I mean, of course, I've heard of Jameson's and uh, a few that I had tried recently when I was uh, exploring a little more in Irish whiskeys were uh, Tullamore Jew and um, Wolfhound. And uh, there's another one I'm not remembering now. And then one I, I just had a, a small sample of was Writer's Tears, which is a, a fairly new one, I think. And uh, I really liked that one. But I had never heard of Powers before, so when I found out that, that uh, it was in my doctor's family, I thought, I've oh, got to try it. And I must say, I, I do enjoy it. I think it's a good one. Powers so, is exceptional. Yeah. And yeah. oddly enough, I went back to that bar um, recently and discovered that their go-to whiskey uh, for an Irish coffee was now Jameson's. And I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not what I had a year ago. Yeah. I said, no, that's, uh, that's uh, what we're doing now. You have to ask for the power. Oh, ah. do you? Well, I at least see. you know what to ask for now. Indeed, and so <laughs> do you. All right. Well, thanks again for joining me, Robert. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So, uh, so Barbara, you mentioned that you are currently living in Manhattan, which I could tell from the, uh, the number that I had. Uh, although, you know, with phone numbers these days, you never know for sure. But, uh, but I thought you were out there on the, uh, on the East Coast in the Big Apple. Where are you from originally? London. London. You know, England. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't, have, that, you don't have that sound right off the bat. I know, I know. I'm, I'm the child of refugees who ended up there, and, uh, and um, they met uh, sometime after the war, and were courting and stuff, and then decided to get married, and then a few years went by, and my brother came along, and a few more years went by, and I came along. And then um, uh, a couple of brothers of my father decided to move to the States, and they said, oh, come to America. And so we all got on a great big boat and came to New York. So I was, um, I was a very little girl when we actually got here. Ah, I see. So you didn't actually pick up that much of the accent there. Although, I mean, if your parents had been there, I'm sure that you heard some when you were younger. Oddly enough, I was told throughout my youth, what's a youth? <laughs> um, that uh, that I that I had an English accent growing up because my mother had this uh, hybrid German English accent and my father Polish and uh, so I grew up in in a multilingual household and uh, my ears always picked up because I've always had a good pair of ears which is why I've um, you know sort of specialized in dialects and characterizations over the years. Yeah, I've heard that from a few people that when you have that kind of a background, it's a huge help uh, later on if you end up going into something like audiobook narration, where you run into characters of you know various different nationalities and whatnot. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's one series which uh, I no longer do because the series has ended and the author passed, which is sad because we were great friends for many, many years. Mm. Elizabeth Peters, she wrote a wonderful series about a family, an English family um, at the turn of the century of archaeologists who go to Egypt on digs and once there discover crime or a missing mummy or trading in bad artifacts and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And uh, their family are incredible and astonishing and they would always stay at shepherd's hotel and uh in cairo and um 
And there they would meet a whole host of international swells, and they would all come from, you know, Australia and America and Switzerland and uh, India and various other folk. And as she and I got to know each other, she started peppering her books with more challenges for me, (laughs) (laughs) knowing that I'd have such a good time being at uh, a dinner table um, at Shepherd's with all of these voices talking, just separated by he says and she says. And right. she was right, I had a blast. That's great. I love those those actor challenges, which are not just challenging, but also a lot of fun. Oh, sure. It makes, yeah. the, it makes the life worthwhile. I've got to tell you, Rich, this work just never gets old for me. Whenever a manuscript shows up, however tedious or badly written or whatever, it will all benefit with a good narration uh, by someone skilled enough to to see past um, uh, problems and just uh, join up with the author and say, okay, it's you and me, babe. Yeah. Let's make this thing jump off the page. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, telling, telling a story is what it's all about. So you, uh, that's you exactly came, right. You came to the U.S. when you were young. Uh, did you settle in mm-hmm. New York and just stay there the whole time, or did you move around, or...? I moved around eventually. I mean, I grew up in Manhattan, and um, and then after university, I went to London. I went back because I was a citizen, so I could. Oh, that's great. And um, so after doing, I think, you know, dinner theater here, um, which is about the f- the uh, first, you know, professional, I'm, I'm going away from home, Mom, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> moment for me, um, I did that. I did about three of those shows, and I worked for a newspaper for a little bit. I taught for 10 minutes, and then I thought, I'm getting out of here. (laughs) Uh, And I went to England ostensibly for a wedding. You know, not mine, but I lived in Hope. And um, and while I was there, I thought, you know what? I can work here. Good Lord, I'm in London. What, am I crazy? So I started auditioning, and I got my very first show, and that got me my equity card, my English equity card. It's the first union card I ever held which got me a West End show, and I thought, oh, my God, I've left home. I'm, I'm here. So, yeah, so that's, um, that's what I did. And, uh, and I, had a, I had a good time there. It was a struggle, of course, but um, I loved being in London, and I loved being sort of the American in London, you know, who could yeah. do English accents yeah. as well. So, so where did you, uh, was... where, where did you do university work? Uh, I'm sorry? Where did you go to university? Where did I go? Uh, City University of New York. City College, up in Harlem. Staying in Manhattan Uh, for that time. Yep, I did. I had a radio show called Front Row Center, and that's where I started my life in radio, which I still love. I'm trying to think of creating a a new show as we speak, believe it or not. Oh, that's great. Um, uh, But that's just in the planning stages at this moment. But uh, nonetheless... Um, I, I reviewed Broadway shows when I was uh, at City College and had a show called Front Row Center, as I said, and it was once a week, and I got to play cuts from my favorite albums and review stuff. Oh, it was fabulous. And uh, I was in the Musical Comedy Society, so I did shows and all kinds of good stuff. I, had, I think those, those years went by in such a hurry. Um, I think I got about 20 minutes of sleep. All, all <laughs> it can be that way. So it was uh, City College in New York and then going to London, and then you came back here. That's right. After a little spate of teaching here and other little things that I did, I was in London for about 
14 years, and I did several West End shows. Oh, 14 years. That's quite a while. Oh, yeah. I, um, I settled there and uh, had a life and everything. And, wow. um And did the Edinburgh Festival and all kinds of good stuff. And then, uh, you know... Uh, started working on my voiceover chops. I did my first audiobook in Great Britain. I'd never even heard of an audiobook. <laughs> no kidding. So, um, so if you were over there at the time, when was this? What what time frame are you were you, are you talking about? Um. Oh, this would have been like the late eighties. That's that's um, what I was guessing because I know that even though audiobooks have been around in one form or another, I think since the seventies or earlier. Um, they didn't really get to be more popular, and I say that uh, yeah. with qualifications, until I think sometime in the in the mid to late 80s. And of course, the yeah, popularity was- then is nothing compared to what it is now, but, but I know that that's when they started coming up, and that's when I first heard my first uh, audiobook on cassette, of course. Well, I knew that it, that at one point in the world, um, discs were created mm-hmm. with people like Boris Karloff and uh, Richard Attenborough and all sorts of fabulous people who did uh, recordings from stuff. But I'd never been involved in that world mm-hmm. until my agent over there said to me one day, would you like to go and record a book? And I thought, a, a what now? Yeah, what are you talking um, about? <laughs> uh, and he said, yeah, we'll, we'll lock you into a studio for like three days and you're going to record this this book, I think it was a Harlequin romance, was absolutely awful. And um, my mother was always um, uh, famous for saying, my first roast beef is still tough. I think my first audio book is still dreadful. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a Harlequin romance. I think it was a, uh, a Scottish-Canadian logging romance. Oy. Logging uh, romance, wow. A logging romance, you know, a big, tough logger guy. Scottish mm-hmm, yeah. girl, you know. <laughs> and so I was in a studio for three days, and I was like a wet rag at the end of it. And I thought, that was the most incredible uh, piece of work I've ever done. I mean, the control of being able to create all your own characters in this setting. And I thought, oh, my God, this is brilliant. And then I never did it again for ages. Until I got back to New York. Huh. So, well, that was good, though, that you had, uh, you had already had that experience. How did you get into it after you'd gotten back to the States? I was at an audition for a voiceover with one of the agents I was working with at the time who uh, paired me up with a, with a male voice, one of the male clients, for this audition for some product. And I said, hey, good to see you. What have you been up to? He said, oh, I've been recording... Um, the biography of Winston Churchill. I said, pardon me? What? Where? <laughs> and he said, talking books for the blind for the Library of Congress. Mm. I went, oh, and where are they? <laughs> oh, they're down, in, they're down in, uh, in the village in lower Manhattan. I said, point your finger in the direction I need to go immediately. Yeah. And so he gave me the contact info, and I called them up, and I said to them, um, I would very much like to come in and audition for you because they were paying professional uh, voiceover artists to record books, and I thought, oh, ah, no kidding! So this was oh not my a, god, this wasn't a pro bono and, but, thing. Oh god, no, 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 no! Wow. It was money from the government, from the Library of Congress. I thought, oh, I've got to have a crack at this. Yeah. So I went down there and met the manager of the studio, uh, who was a lovely man. 
and he auditions everybody. And uh, I told him I'd only recorded one book, but I did lots of accents and and uh, dialects and blah blah. He said, "Uh huh, uh huh." You know, I've heard that before. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> he handed me a couple of nasty little excerpts from a couple of books. You know, the first one that I remember is some American woman uh, arriving in Dubai with her two children that were raised in France being greeted by an Arab emissary. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) of course, right? (laughs) So I get in the studio, and it's about two pages long, and about two-thirds of the way through, he stops me, and he says, well, clearly you've done this before. Um, and, uh, he said, okay, I think we have enough. And then he introduced me around and, uh, said, uh, we should probably have a title for you very soon. Wow. That's and, great. That's um, a, that's a quick start. It was a very quick start. And, um, so the book started coming and at the time they didn't want a lot of drama in the read, mm-hmm. but you know, you can't keep a good girl down. <laughs> and I felt I can't be this bland. It's just not in my nature. So um, as we all had to do our very own research in those days, you know, combing through Webster's Bio, Webster's Geo, I mean, all Random House, all kinds of big texts to get our Latin pronunciations and everything else, we did this all on our own. Um, uh, I still had to infuse the read with, um, with, with hope and body and spirit mm-hmm. and soul. Um, and I said, you know, I'm going to do this anyway, because <laughs> I have to. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, Washington, uh, the, at the Library of Congress, they're very, very picky. And they give you a chance with two or three books. And after that, if you're not doing what they tell you, they say, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Um, and I started getting all these reviews from D.C., that were that were warm and thoughtful and kind and they said oh i was really pulled in by the story and this was really good and she's got a smooth delivery and her her pacing is wonderful and blah blah and i thought oh, my goodness you know they like me they really like mm-hmm, me yeah <laughs> so i worked for them for a good couple of years until the first commercial uh uh, outfit reared their head, and that was recorded books. Yeah, so that's really interesting that that their direction was pretty flat, and you added more to it, and that really took off in terms of the response from the audience. Absolutely, because the uh, the the process with the Library of Congress involves tone indexed machines, which means everything uh, on the audiobook that they give you to record has to be recorded, <clears throat> including all addenda uh, and uh, postscripts and everything, all tone indexed on a machine that the visually impaired use in order to access the material. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they wanted everything to be of a certain uh, level of professionalism that wasn't too intrusive, uh, allowing the, those who are visually impaired to enjoy the book uh, as well as they could. Mm-hmm. So I brought a little bit of flash to that whole, that whole program because I thought it needed it, and clearly they agreed, which was nice because I recorded a couple hundred books for them. Yeah, And, yeah, um, and at the same time, I started recording with recorded books. So 
for a while there, I was recording for two companies at the same time. And then I get my first Broadway show. Ah, what was that? That was The Secret Garden. Ah, I have not seen that one, but I have some friends who I think that's their favorite musical. <laughs> yeah, I'm discovering that. Um, we've done a couple of anniversary editions over the last 20 years, which has been fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the last one was at Lincoln Center a couple of years ago, and oh my God, that was a New York moment. It was spectacular. That's great. Um, and uh, But the thing is, apart from just creating... Uh, a, a principal character in it. I was also the production dialect coach. Oh, fantastic! So I had to, yeah. So I had two separate contracts and had to teach everybody how to talk Brit and whatever else we had to do in that show. Mm-hmm. And I also, I also trained the um, the uh, national touring company and mm-hmm. all the new kids that were coming in because we were on Broadway for a couple of years and we won several Tonys and it was really wonderful. So I'd be like recording books in the daytime and doing eight shows a week and coaching actors coming in. I never worked so hard in my life. Holy cow. Yeah. If you're doing, I know that, you know, a Broadway show compared to the, the smaller theater work that I've done where we've got four shows a week or maybe five every once in a while, uh, doing a Broadway show is a different animal. That's a full-time job. And on top of that, you're still recording books as well. Yes, well, you know, girls got to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and I started, you know, I had to start to build up my future, you know. Sure. Here I was in the States in a very, in a very uh, uh, successful Broadway show. I mean, it was thrilling to get to do it because live theater is like nothing else, yeah. you know. Yeah, it really is. And when you have uh, several, several uh, uh, um, arrows in your quiver, um, and you get to do voiceovers, and you get to do Broadway, and then you can do a commercial, and you do a film, and then you do some TV, and it's like, that's what being a working actor should be. Yeah, yeah, all, all kinds of different things. And I know that by that point, you had already started working in film. I, um, I'd, I'd done a few films in England. Um, Red comes to mind, that uh, mm-hmm. Warren Beatty thing from a million years ago. Yeah. Uh, not too much film, but... Uh, well, there was I did way more West End. Hmm? There, there was something what? I actually, uh, I actually looked up your credits, and there is a film that is that was in there that surprised me. And I'm guessing by the name of the character, I think it was just American Woman. It was a probably a very small part, but it is, in my opinion, one of the most um, underappreciated films of the '80s, and that was Turtle Diary. Oh, you remember that film? I mean, I got to work with Glenda Jackson. Yeah. And uh, who's that? Who's that fellow who played Gandhi? Why do I always forget his name? Ben, ben Kingsley. Kingsley. He right. I, who's who's a sweetheart? Yeah, I just that was just such a sweet little movie that just kind of came and went, and um, you know, I never see it. I would I would love to see it again. It, it was such a sweet little movie, and uh, and so I don't know how how big or small the part was. Of course, for actors there are no small parts. Um, but uh, but that actually was the, the the phrase is there are no small parts, just no close ups. <laughs> That's good. Um, when so, I did Turtle Diary, I just played this American tourist in a bookshop because it all takes place in the. Uh, in the small bookshop world of London, and uh, and I remember Harold Pinter wrote the script, and this guy was very very picky with his scripts. You you had to be exactly on point with every word he writes, and oh I remember goodness. doing so many takes because I had to say something like, "I'll have one of these and two of those," and the line should have read, "I'll have one of those and two of these," <laughs> and. 
when you when you invert them, um, some little lady with glasses will walk up to you and say, "No, darling, no, no, no." Uh, would you just check the script, will you, please? You know. That's funny. And, and he, that was he embarrassing. Was, and he was in the movie, wasn't he? Um, briefly, okay. but uh, it it was Harold Pinter, and you know he was uh, never short on words. But he 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 wrote very very well and neatly mm-hmm. and efficiently. Yeah. And it was very exciting to meet him too. So yeah. Well, that that's great. Fun. So that was a long time ago. Little detour there. I just I love that movie, and I I you know big smile got on my face when I saw that you'd been in that. And then uh, like you mentioned, <laughs> Reds and uh, a few other things. So, so then you're in New York, and you're in your first Broadway show, and you're coaching dialects, and you're also recording audiobooks. That must have been uh, quite a whirlwind. After the, uh, after the show closed, then did you go back to mostly audiobooks, or was it just continually, I'm a, I'm a working actor, and you just keep doing all of the things that working actors do? You need to do all of the things that working actors do. Yeah. I did uh, commercials. I, I started getting into video games. I did... Uh, Grand Theft Auto a couple of times. I've heard of that um, one. And I got to tell you, I got so much street cred from that. So <laughs> I was doing a lot of personal appearances around the country for recorded books and uh, where I would meet fans and or do li- library staff development days and meet mm-hmm. lots of librarians who I think I am biologically joined at the hip to because <laughs> I love librarians. And oh, yeah. I tell them every time I meet them because I think they're the last line of uh, defense for civility in this country, you know, mm-hmm. and they are underappreciated, an underappreciated species, subset of humanity. I completely you know, agree. Go appreciate your librarian. Yep, completely agree. Is what I say. So, uh, so yes, I, I did all of this <laughs> mentioned Grand Theft Auto. I was, uh, what was it? I was doing a, um, a matinee of a play, and there was a notice uh, it was a Sunday, so the last show's at 3 o'clock, which is lovely. And I got a little message backstage that somebody wanted to meet me after the show. And I went, okay. So I got my makeup off, put myself together, and there's, you know, it's the end of the day, and I can't wait to get home and slip into something cool and dry, like a martini. <laughs> and, um, and there are these two English folks standing outside going, oh, my God, you're Rennie Wasselmeyer. And I thought, what? Oh, yes. The character from Grand Theft Auto that uh. I created. And they stood there with an avatar, a picture of my avatar in their hands. I said, how did you capture that? You know? Because I'm, I'm technically illiterate. Um, <laughs> and uh, I had to sign it and whatever. I said, could you send me a copy of this? Because I would love to have that. Because it was a crazy-ass uh, character I played. Oh, my God. But... Uh, uh, yeah, getting to do video games, it's amazing what an impact those things had on folk in those, and still continue oh, to do. I oh, absolutely. Another yeah. video game the other month. So they're a lot of fun. They're, they're difficult to do, but they're fun. Um, I know that they are difficult. They're, I, I know a lot of voice actors who, uh, they'll, if people ask them, well, what do you want to do most in voice acting? It's animation or, you know, animation including video games or something along those lines. It is not something I'd, I'd be happy to do that, but it's not something that I've ever gone after because it is really hard work. It is uh, hard on the voice, or it can be, depending on what it is that you're voicing. And, you know, if you're, if you're in a studio for four hours in a war game, grunting and shouting at, uh, at all the people in your, uh, in your squad, uh, that's hard on the voice. 
It is hard on the voice. I just did that for a, for <laughs> earlier this summer for another game, the name of which escapes me. Um, <laughs> but I played, you know, the female leader of some tribe, and of course she has to get out there and engage with the troops and all that. And of course, you're sitting in a booth with a cup of coffee in your hand. Yeah. You go, okay, the bad guys are over there, and the good guys are over here, and and there are a bunch of versions that you need to do because you're doing play. So play mm-hmm. requires choices. And uh, so the scripts are long and tedious and, and difficult. Unlike animation, I, I just finished uh, a couple of animated projects this summer. Uh, one, a pilot with uh, Mel Blanc. Uh, not Mel Blanc, Mel Brooks. Oh, no kidding. We don't have Mel Blanc anymore, oh, sadly. Mel Brooks is um, awesome. Some people used to call me Melanie Blanc. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> That's a compliment. Yeah, uh, really. No, I was just saying that Mel, um, Mel Brooks is, is fantastic, and I know he's done a lot of animation stuff as well. Well, we've been a part of this uh, this uh, pilot, um, which is uh, based on a Grimm's fairy tale, a sort of an animated musical thing, and with a lot of important people in it. And I'm I'm hoping something happens to it, and that I get to come along for the ride as and when it gets picked up. You know? Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. And yeah, and earlier this summer I did um, uh, several episodes of a new series for Amazon, which is being. Um, animated in Ireland right now going back to powers uh, mm-hmm. and that's called Bug Diary which is a lot of fun it's for kids it's about a worm with a journal and uh, it's a lot of fun cool. so I got to be bees and Katie Dids and flies and whatever and well I imagine that that, that was worm. a lot of fun but not nearly as vocally stressful as a video game not at all but the point the point of bringing your A game uh, as one must in all facets of life, but when you bring your A game, time is money. When you when you're called to do a uh, a commercial and a recording session, apart from just being prepared and showing up on time, mm-hmm. is is the ability to give whoever is directing you options, so that um, you you can see where you are in the script and see what where you are placed in the world they've created. Mm-hmm. so that you can offer choices to them. Because most often, the the people that you are answering to on the same page that you're staring at aren't present. You're doing this. Um, uh, they're all isolated responses on a page of script. Mm-hmm. And so it's your job to be able to imagine, uh, as well as you can, uh, how the other person is framing what they're saying. And this way, you give the director and the producer on the other side of the glass options so that they can cut and paste all that stuff together later and it makes it seeming seamless uh, conversation that uh, is smooth and lovely uh, in the final edit yeah yeah now that that makes a lot of sense and and the more you can differentiate between those options the easier it is for them i know that a uh, of a, course a big of thing course. in a lot of uh, whether it's commercials or animation or whatever is give me the abc read and I know that a lot of people, myself included, uh, have had trouble with that at some point in their career where, well, I thought those were different, and really they're not that different. And so uh, being, mm. being able to give you know, very distinct options is always, always a plus. Absolutely. And one of the things I, I raise in my book, um, uh, Audiobook Narrator, The Art of Recording Audiobooks, was uh, the book itself was a bunch of chapters that were turned into chapters out of questions I've been asked incessantly for 30 years of recording audiobooks. 
and uh, and and uh, one of them involves uh, knowing what's in your toolbox, meaning what do you bring to the party? Are you even aware of what your skill set is? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how high do you go? How low do you go? How tired do you get? Um, how small can you be? How loud can you be? Those are all the tools you have. You need to be aware of what they are so that you can bring them out um, um, second by second as you make your choices in an audio situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. So so let's see, you were uh, you kept doing the acting thing, and I know you've done some, uh, some television recently as well. Uh, I'm not sure how many people know this. I did not, even though... I have known of you for many years, did not know that in the first few seasons of um, Orange is the New Black, a very popular Netflix show, you were a recurring character. Indeed. Um, I mean, I'd done some other things prior, but nothing that changed my life the way this did. Mm -hmm. It was hilarious on Twitter because I get all these people writing to... uh, uh, Rosenblatt underscore actor, you know, and I, w- I would sign my little tweets, uh, you know, uh, at Miss, uh, hashtag Miss Rosa. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and they would say, oh my God, we've been listening to you for 30 years. You're Miss Rosa? Yeah. Oh my God. No, that's, you know? that's what happened to me. I mean, I, when, I, when I looked up your credits at some point uh, prior to this, this was like, I don't know, six months ago or two years ago, or, or uh, it was probably right after uh, APAC in 2017. And I saw that you had been in Orange is the New Black. I thought, what? I've watched that entire series. What? Who was she? And so I had to, had to look it up and everything. And then I went back and I, I saw a couple of clips and it was like, oh, holy cow. Didn't realize. Well, yeah, I, it, um, it was astonishing to me because uh, I had no idea after season one where this thing was going. Sure, yeah. So when season, so when season two came along, I mean, I, I thought to myself, gee, I hope they have me back. Mm-hmm. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so, uh, so tell me about getting into that. Well, I didn't audition for the role I ultimately got. I, um, uh, I initially went up for Red, that's played by Kate Mulgrew, the uh, cook uh, mm-hmm. in the prison. Yeah, and um, and uh, who's wonderful. And oddly enough, we seem to have similar facial features, facial. Structure. So I've had various people say to me, "Oh yeah, you play Red on on on." No, uh, I wanted to. But I've, had, I've, I've had that a lot, which is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And she's a wonderful woman, by the way, just such a sweetheart too. We also have these this sort of you know um, whiskey soaked voices, I guess you could call mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Um, although I still play kids. <laughs> um, and then uh, they gave me a piece of her um, scene from uh, uh, the partially completed first episode of season one. And um, they weren't sure if she was going to be Greek or Russian, didn't know. And um, ultimately they said, when I got this audition, which took forever, but I got one, um, they said, okay, try, try the Russian accent. Oh, okay. So I prepared, um, desperately prepared for like a week, mm-hmm. so that I, you know, would acquit myself well at this audition. I was nervous as heck. Oh God! <laughs> and um, walked into uh, to Jen Houston's office. Jen Houston, the multi Emmy award winning casting director of this and other shows, mm-hmm. and um, I had never met her, and I did my scene. 
which was a virulent, really hot, uh, swear-ridden scene. Um, and at the end of it, she picked her eyes up off the video camera and looked at me and said, how is it we've never met? <laughs> That's a great thing to hear. And in my head, I'm going, well, it wasn't for want of trying. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then she said, well, you know what? We're going to get you in this prison one way or another. And I thought, ooh, things are looking up. Yeah. And uh, so I, I thanked her quietly, and uh, I backed out of the room, and I left, and I thought, I think that went well. Mm -hmm. um, and a few days later, my agent called me up and said, well, you didn't get Miss Rosa, but they'd like to offer you, the, you didn't get rather red, mm -hmm. but they would like to offer you the role of Miss Rosa. And I said, okay, who's this? <laughs> She's a prisoner. All right. Uh, what did she do? I don't know. Uh, what's her last name? No idea. <laughs> Where is she from? Not a clue. But she has cancer, and she's bald. Would you shave your head? And I said, so what am I supposed to do the rest of the week? Play Daddy Warbucks in rest? <laughs> and so I walked away. I said, I'm not doing that. No, thanks very much. Bye-bye. And about a week later, they came back and said, okay, we'll get this multi-Emmy award-winning special effects uh, makeup artist, Josh Turi, to, um, to, to do my makeup. And I thought, okay, now you got me. I can do That's that, fine. yeah. Yeah, now I can do this. Um, I'm not going to shave my head. I don't even know what they want to use me for, you know, or mm -hmm. how often. As it happens, I only did five episodes in season one. Right. So, you know, you wake up at half past dark in the morning and uh, show up at the studio, and Josh did everything he could to keep me awake because it took about three hours to do this. I was going to say, if, you're, uh, if every time you're going on, you're going to have to do this, you know, Emmy Award-winning makeup thing, it's got to take hours to get that prepared. Well, it took about three hours. I think we got it down to around two by the end of the second year. Yeah, a lot of practice. Um, That'll do it for it, you. <laughs> absolutely. But he had to make a fresh scalp and shoulder and neck. I mean, it was a very complicated piece of uh, makeup work and airbrush work. I mean, there were fake eyebrows and, and uh, just pieces all over me, and it took about 40 minutes to remove all of it with three different solvents at the end of a very long day. Wow. And uh, I had to go back to makeup to uh, have them get the gunk out of my head, my hair that uh, flattened it as much as it could before that... Um, silicone piece went on top of it, you know, mm. so that they could restore me to something that looked vaguely normal. In fact, <laughs> on one occasion, I was directed by Jodie Foster for an episode in season one, and um, I remember it was an interesting scene, and she needed to talk to me, and I was already in makeup, and I'd never met her before, and she was absolutely charming, a really good director. And we talked about the scene and where the cameras were going to be and how far she thought I could go with this. And um, at the end of the day, it was shot and it was good and she was happy and blah, blah, blah. And that was the end of that. And then, of course, 40 minutes getting this crap off my head and uh, going back to makeup and hair so they could wash the gunk, the gunk out of my 
hair and blow dry me and then I could change and put lipstick on and my earrings and all that. And I wanted to say goodnight, you know, so I walked back. They were still shooting. And um, I walked back up to uh, Video Village, which is where most people sit and watch while the action is going on, and they watch from video monitors. Mm -hmm. And um, so at, at the end of one moment when they went cut, I thought, okay, let me, let me go and say goodbye to Jody. So I walked up to her, and I tapped her on the shoulder, and she turned around and went, <laughs> Barbara? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> because she'd never met me. Sure, she'd yeah. only met Miss Rosa. Yeah. Um, and I cannot wait to bring that up with her again when next I meet her. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. It sounds like a fantastic experience. Um, I it was amazing. I assume that on those days that you were shooting that show with all of that work involved, you weren't doing any narrating on, the, uh, on, your, on your lunch break. Not not on shoot days. No, yeah. on shoot days they were shoot days, and yeah. uh, uh, you get up very early in the morning. And I got to tell you, when you arrive in Astoria, because we shot at Astoria, Kaufman Astoria Studios, uh, and you arrive there on a snowy morning at six a.m., you know, <laughs> your day's spoken for. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. So, uh, well, that's great. Thank you for taking me down that road. I, uh, I certainly have enjoyed that show. I'm looking forward. They've got a new season coming out on, uh, I think it's tomorrow. And uh, so I'm looking forward to, to getting those episodes in. But back to audiobooks. So, um, so you have continued to narrate as part of uh, what you do as an actor. Um, what's, your, what's your recording situation like at this point? Do you always go into studios or do you record at oh, home yeah. or is it some of both? Um, no, I have a recording set up so that I can send clips of things to my agent for auditions and whatnot, MP3s mm -hmm. and things. But if I'm going to record an audiobook, uh, I personally need to be in a studio somewhere in town with an engineer. Uh, and uh, if I'm really, really, really lucky... I get an engineer and a director who's actually read the book, mm. <laughs> and uh, and I can actually do the work uh, without being uh, uh, responsible for editing or stopping or mm -hmm. you know retake or whatever. Somebody else deals with that, and I can just focus on the work. Yeah, no, that's great. What about uh, the types of audiobooks that you do? Do you have? Anything that you would consider a specialty or a niche or um, or something that you prefer? You know, preferences, yes, we can talk about preferences, but I, I've always considered myself a genre-free recording artist mm -hmm. uh, because if you, uh, if you have a certain skill set in the audio world, you should be able to tackle about ever, just about anything. Mm -hmm. I had a top litigator from California recently come to my website and asking me, do I ever do nonfiction? And I'm thinking to myself, of course I do nonfiction. <laughs> I recorded the first book at Audible, and uh, that was nonfiction. Wait, you, you um, mean the first book that Audible produced? Yes. No kidding. What was that? Um, what was it called? Stories of my life? I I'm trying to remember. Uh, a friend of mine who was one of the, uh, who, who um, often reviewed uh, audiobooks for um, Audiophile Magazine, which is the uh, 
which is the magazine that um, discusses and reviews our our work mm -hmm. in this industry. His wife um, was going through cancer, and uh, she wrote a self-help book uh, for people on how to deal with the doctors and the medication and the chemo and all of that. And he came to me. Um, uh, he, he, he had reviewed, before we ever met, he'd reviewed tons of my stuff and said, would I record this thing uh, for this company um, called Audible? And I went... Oh, who are they? Um, and uh, I said I'd be happy to. And uh, so, yeah, the other night, uh, the other night, the other month, I think it was early June, um, uh, I was inducted into the Audible Narrator Hall of Fame, the first group of inductees. That's fantastic. That. Which is amazing, yeah. um, and uh, and Beth Anderson, who is uh, one of the big muckety muck executive producers and directors there, she's the one who dragged me to the studio that first time to record that first book in that tiny little space in New Jersey a million years ago. That's fantastic. And uh, she insisted. I, I she had... <laughs> I, I had no idea that you had recorded the first book for them. That's great. Well, she had to remind me because uh, uh, they were introducing the inductees on that huge night at the Newark Museum. It was really it was a splendid event. And, uh, and they gave us all these amazing crystal eggs, uh, which I'm staring at as we speak. <laughs> and um, and she, um, she insisted on introducing me. Uh, so that she could remind everybody that I recorded the first book in Audible. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, so yeah, so you'll do nonfiction and fiction and everything within fiction then. So this lawyer gets a hold of me, and I wrote back, and I said, of course I do nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And so I put her in touch with my agent, and um, we worked out the, uh, the thing. And the, the book is called, um, uh, oh, it's such a long title, and I always get it wrong. Breaking Glass and Kicking Ass, Stories from the Meanest Woman in Town. <laughs> uh, Linda J. Smith writes this book on how women in the corporate uh, climate can make the, the best use of their kick assets, so to speak, mm -hmm. to uh, not to try to outdo the men or outmen the men, but to use what they already have to their to uh, to their benefit, and she explains uh, many things. I learned a ton from her stuff, from her uh, from her book, and uh, I was really thrilled that she asked me to do it. They had sent various uh, voices, I believe, from Audible to uh, her to pick from, and she uh, kindly picked me. And um, so I did this a uh, couple of months ago, and it should be out now, and it's, uh, it's a terrific book. Well, that sounds great. I, I have to say that's one of the things that I love about doing nonfiction is the fact that if it's a topic that you're interested in, you get to learn new stuff. And, uh, and even if it's not something that you would think of as being, oh, well, I would have picked that up. I would have loved to read that. Even if that's not what you're thinking, you can learn stuff from it. Who doesn't love that? And there's another very good point. I like to do a little research whenever I do anything, mm -hmm. just so that I, I, I have... The more, the more a voice knows before they go into the studio, the better prepared they are 
to uh, grace the work with more informed elocution. Sure, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And the night before the, uh, I began this book, um, I was doing some homework trying to find out, now, who is this Linda J. Smith Esquire? And I looked her up, and, uh, and she's a top litigator in L.A., and she worked on the Enron and the, the Dell and uh, did a huge, huge cases. I mean, amazing. Mm-hmm. And she was being, there, there was a, an hour's interview of her available on some women's business website, um, which I found. And it was about an hour long. And I went, ooh, I'm going to listen to this. And so I sat uh, in my office listening to this interview and got a sense of who this woman was. And basically, it was a pricey of the book. So I had a sense of the energies that were required, you know? Yeah, that's so great. That I could, so that I could match them to her text. And uh, so uh, that's what I walked into the studio with. And um, I, I think we all like the results. That, that is a fantastic story. Uh, I have studied nonfiction narration, as have many of my listeners, with Sean Allen Pratt. And that's one of the first things that he talks about is do some research. Um, YouTube is a great resource, and you can find a lot of um, public presentations by people who then go on and write nonfiction books about the topic that they are passionate and knowledgeable about. And so Mm -hmm. being able to um, see those people in action gives you a much better sense of who it is that wrote the words, and that can a lot of times help inform you on a good delivery. Not always. Every once, every once in a while, uh, I have seen, seen a presentation by somebody and thought, oh, yeah, I can't do that because I'll just put people to sleep. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, getting a sense of who the author is is, is great. And if you are thoughtful and receptive as every actor is, and every actor will tell you, acting is reacting. Uh, you get, you get a, uh, um, uh, it's like somebody's handed you a warm coat on a cold day. You're covered by this warmth of knowing that you're safe, and you get into that studio ready to get to work, and uh, because you're prepared. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked over the years, do you read the book first? And I'm thinking, <laughs> do you know any actors who get on stage without having read the script? Yeah. Um, I mean, it just seems, I, I can't understand where that question comes from. Uh, um, unless you think that all this is, is picking up a piece of paper and, you know, pushing a button and going. Re- reading words, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's so not that. It's an art form. Yeah. We are, we are not typesetters. We are creative recording artists elevating work that has already got um, uh, a following and placing it into a new and wonderful place. Yeah. No, that's great. I love that. We are not typesetters. Um, And and that question still comes up frequently uh, in the forums that I uh, frequent about audiobook narration is reading the book first. So um, so what about about genres that you won't narrate uh, or topics that you won't narrate? Anything? Uh, I can't. I can't think of any, frankly. Do you want to name one that well, is the, uh, particularly the, scurrilous that so, I might... Uh... So the one thing that comes up frequently is people will say, I won't narrate... I don't have a problem with romance or erotica, but I won't narrate anything that includes non-consensual sex. 
So that's something that well, comes that's, up sometimes. That's ridiculous. That's it, ridiculous. It, Only because non-consensual sex exists, and sometimes that's the plot of a novel. Um, so that makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, it's your responsibility to channel the author. Well, I think and it, it's part I, of what that. I, I think that the answer typically is not where it happens, but where it is um, condoned or um, uh, what's the word? Uh, they're they're trying to make it that it's fine and okay and everything, and there's no problem with that. Oh, I see what you're saying. You mean uh, less than similar opinions it. about that? Come, I yeah, see. Yeah. I see. Well, it hasn't happened to me yet, um, happily. Yeah. And happily, I, I, uh, I'm pretty good at uh, deciding if something is so rank, uh, I, 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 I don't wish to be associated with it. Well, that's a, that, um, that I think up, that's only happened once. That, that brings up a good question, too. Um, do you always, so, of course, you always read the book before you narrate. Do you always read the book before you accept the job? Um, I don't read the book through before I accept the job. I look to see what the book is, mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, told about it. And I, and like you said, you've got YouTube, you've got Google, you can find out lots and lots and lots about a book. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I accept it and I crack it open and there, there can be lots of ugliness within the book. Uh, and God knows I've recorded a ton of ugly in my life. <laughs> a ton of ugly, yeah. uh, but it's part of the job. It's what you're supposed to do. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, understand. Um, so what about, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Do you do any coaching, teaching? I have done some. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time with it because I'm busy trying to have a life. <laughs> but, uh, but I have on a, on a couple of occasions done a couple of master classes uh, in L.A. Mm -hmm. My publisher, uh, Dan O'Day, who uh, does some pretty terrific programs out there for uh, folks who want to learn all about ACX and uh, uh, other things to help them navigate the world of audiobooks, and he's well worth looking up, I think. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, uh, organized a couple of, uh, of two-day seminars that I did and uh, where I take no prisoners <laughs> two days of real hard work but it's about the it's about the process not about pushing buttons or how do I find an agent um, mm -hmm. I talk about the work and uh, and there were clips of that I believe on um, on my Facebook page which uh, I think is Barbara Rosenblatt audiobook narrator of my Facebook page um, I can be I can be written to at uh, Barbara at BarbaraRosenblatt dot com, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Rosenblatt underscore actor. Okay, well that's that's good to know. Um, so it sounds like you don't do any one on one coaching. It's just uh, when the opportunity arises and everything works out well, you might be doing a workshop type of thing. Sometimes actors will call me up and say, I've got an audition on Friday to play a Nazi commandant, and I, I, I need you to help me with my German accent. So I'll say, great, come on by, and bring the script, two copies, and uh, we'll try to work you into a decent enough 
uh, German accent to get you through the audition. That's what I do. That's great. That's great. So it's kind of a kind of a um, individual situation kind of thing, as opposed to ongoing, you know, up the audiobook game or anything like that. There you go. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, so, what words of wisdom do you have? A lot of a lot of my listeners are uh, aspiring narrators, uh, either just starting out or they've only been out this for a couple of years. As somebody who's been in the business for a substantial period of time, what uh, what would you advise people just getting into it now? Have patience and learn the craft. Listen to good audio recorded by skilled recording artists, and keep listening to yourself read stuff. Keep working and upping your game so that when you finally do get that magical first novel, you'll be ready. Mm -hmm. Oh, and one more thing. Mm -hmm. Just remember, with all the work that you do, all the the preparation, you've figured out all the dialects and your audio world and you've, you've, you've figured out your audio canvas and all that good stuff, you've done that. Just Allow yourself, when you start recording, whether you do it at home or in a studio, allow yourself to be surprised. Mm. Because the minute, you put, the minute you put lip to mic, something magical happens. And you've got to allow room for that to pop through. That's great. I love that. Allow yourself to be surprised. Um, I, can, I can think about how that uh, certainly applies to stagecraft. Um, you know, you, you've got to have the, in, in that situation, you're playing somebody who, um, doesn't know the story, right? They're living it instead of knowing how it comes out. And, uh, and so I can see that and I can see how that fits in audiobooks as well. Different situation, but, uh, I love that. Allow yourself to be surprised. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Barbara, this has been great. I really appreciate you coming into the audiobook speakeasy here. I hope your uh, your iced tea was good, especially with that lime. I think I'm going to try that next time I have some iced tea. And uh, my Powers Irish whiskey was just fine. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Rich. I really enjoyed it. That's that's great. Thanks again for coming in. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned all of your uh, social media um, links there. I will put those in the show notes as well so people can uh, can reach out if they want to. Cool. All right. Thanks, Barbara. Well, that's it for tonight. I am thrilled to have had the opportunity to sit down and have a drink with the amazing Barbara Rosenblatt. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. In every audiobook recording session from now on, I, for one, am going to try to remember to allow myself to be surprised. You can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Special thanks to Todd Waits this week, who left a generous donation in the tip jar, along with a very kind note about enjoying the interviews and wanting to help keep the lights on and the bar restocked here in the speakeasy. Much appreciated, Todd. 
Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!